0: Now, Heavenly Father, as we just pause before we reflect upon your holy word, we like to get things straight in our head and in our hearts as well. This has not its origin in man, it's a supernatural living thing, the Bible. God breathed a word sent that's alive and able to cut into our heart and do work to bring healing, cleansing. And instruction how we could live a blessed life to find peace with God. So help us receive your heaven sent word and to do what it says, to put it into practice so we can be blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. The heart of the message of First Peter, as you have been seeing. Together, here is to encourage believers who are facing unjust suffering. Because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ, because of their faith, they're in trouble. So the letter written by the Holy Spirit through Peter is a letter that's meant to encourage people who live under a regime that's hostile to Christianity, like Yusef Nadar Khani, in Iran. Now this is the second example I have used from the persecutedchurch.com. Here's a picture of Yousef who is languishing in prison right now in Iran. He's been there for a couple years. He has an appeal pending before the Supreme Leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini. Thank you for the picture so that you have a face with this story. Yusuf Nadar Khani, a 34-year-old pastor from Rasht, Iran, about 750 miles northwest of Tehran, was arrested in October 2009 after he questioned a government policy that required children, including his eight and nine-year-old boys, to study the Quran and pray to Allah. Yousef told school officials that the Iranian constitution allows for freedom of religious practice. As a result, the secret police called him before a political tribunal and arrested him and charged him with apostasy, which is a falling away of Islam. And they charged him with evangelism of Muslims, which is a crime. Youssef was tried on September 21st, 2010 by the first court of the Revolutionary Tribunal and sentenced to death on November 13th for um, rebelling against Islam. The pastor is imprisoned in Lacan prison where authorities have used various methods including medication to convert him back to Islam. All such methods have failed to cause Yusuf to denounce Christ. He is in prison today, waiting on his appeal. Christians like Yusuf, and to various degrees, all Christians everywhere, need to know how to respond in the face of such trouble. How do I live out my faith, my Christian faith, in these kinds of of situations where it costs me something to stand up for what's right and what I believe God is calling me to do. How do I live out my faith when the world goes crazy around me? So Peter's concerns in First Peter, his letter, is how to choose to suffer and do the right thing rather than disobey God, how to maintain our Christian testimony, in the face of hostile rejection and how to follow Jesus' example, who he himself suffered rejection, but then he was vindicated and ultimately very victorious. And those who follow him in the same way, they too will suffer for doing the right thing. They too might be even put to death. They too will be raised from the dead in triumph and be vindicated by God as even Christ was. That is the theme of First Peter. And here in chapter 3, after instructing us how we must live out our Christian faith in all layers of society, in community, at school, in the workplace, in the family, with husbands and wives, he has told us how to live our Christian life. And that, in those areas, now Peter gets back to the heart of his message, which is how to bear up under unjust suffering. Verse 13, who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong or evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Holy Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Well, that's the text we're going to consider this morning. May the Holy Spirit help us all because it's very rich and profound in its significance for us today. Normally, Peter says, doing the right thing is a safeguard against trouble. But things aren't always normal. And when they're not, there's a strategy for Christians in order for them to face hostility and please God. I hear Peter exhorting us to three things in this passage. Number one, if you're taking notes, get your thinking straight. Number one. Number two, get your words ready, and number three, get ready for heaven. So number one, let's get our thinking straight. Here's a paraphrase of the opening verses which we just read. Generally speaking, when you're always wanting to do the right thing, you have nothing to worry about. But even if doing the right thing gets you into trouble or means you have to suffer for the sake of doing good, you're blessed. So, in a perfect world, Peter is saying, you would think that do-gooders have nothing to fear at work, at home, at school, in the community. Think about it, obeying the law, paying your taxes, uh, being sensitive and kind and loving in the home, loving the Lord and trying always to do the moral thing. Now, you usually don't get fired for being employee of the month, right? Well, spouses don't usually file for divorce when they're being treated with love and respect. Police don't normally cite you for driving the speed limit or obeying traffic signals. And professors don't usually give poor grades to A students unless, of course, they're God-hating liberal teachers who work at the JC, (laughs) whoops, (laughs) the things that just slip out, (laughs) who can't stand Christianity, nor the students who stand up for absolute truth and the Jesus they hate. So, we live in a fallen world. It is true. Normally, you do the right thing, you're going to be blessed in the way that we think of blessing. Things are going to go well. He says normally, but we don't live in a normal world, we live in a fallen world. And when it comes to doing the right thing in Christ, according to the Bible, with Jesus as your Lord, then that, in, in the midst of a Christ-rejecting world, will bring you a little trouble. It's hard to imagine. I mean, John 3.19, Jesus said, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so that's the core of why, if you're trying to do the right thing, that you would get resistance or antagonism or be... Marginalized or ostracized or mocked or insulted or persecuted. Jesus just said it this way Look, the world is in darkness. When the light of Christ comes into a heart and then you start shining, it's kind of like flipping on the lights in the middle of the night. People wake up, see the light, and what? They're irritated. They say, Shut off the light. Are you crazy? What are you doing? And that's exactly the kind of thing that happens spiritually speaking. Edwin Clowney, what's a great commentator, first Peter quotes another writer who says, Indeed, the spectacle of moral beauty does not always disarm the wicked. Rather, they are often irritated by the radiance of a virtue that condemns them. In other words, you don't have to say anything in order to uh, get in trouble as a Christian. You don't have to say anything, you just have to live out your life, and that's enough to cause people to look at you cockeyed and to call you names, because your honesty convicts them of their dishonesty. Your self-control convicts them of their lack. Your sexual morality convicts them of their immorality. A couple guys when I worked at Pepsi... Invited me to go along with them on a Friday night. And I just, Barb was out of town and I said, sure, I'll go with you. And they're all excited about whatever partying, but I, I, they didn't make that clear in the beginning of the invitation, but I'm along now. And so uh, we end up going to go shoot pool and in, and that was fine. And then they, it came to ordering what they wanted to drink. And they ordered their drinks, and then I said, I'll have a, a, a diet Coke. No. <laughs> no, I said, I'll have a diet Pepsi since I work for the company. <laughs> what? What's wrong with you? I don't, I'm not much for drinking, I'm here for playing pool with you guys. What's your problem? Mr. Holier than thou? Uh, all I want is a Diet Pepsi. <laughs> That's all I want here. What? What's the problem with you? What do you have a problem with me for right now? Why is there tension? Why are you rolling your eyes? Why are you mocking me right now? I just want a non-alcoholic beverage. What, because the witness of my control in the light of you wanting to go out and get wasted bothers you? Yeah, I didn't have to say Jesus anything. I don't have to say the Bible says. Nothing. They were intent on not just having us a beer. They wanted to get wasted, and I did not. Therefore, I'm the bad guy. So, yeah, I want to do good. I got to take the heat. That's what the Bible is saying. It is always that way. You don't have to open your mouth. But when you do open your mouth, you only make matters worse. <laughs> So add to this obnoxious behavior of actually wanting to have self-control in your life. Add to that the claims that Jesus makes, that he's the only way to get to heaven. Well, then, you know, sparks really start to fly. So Peter's saying, what if doing the right thing has a price tag on it? Does that change anything for you? Do you say, oh, no, because I'm going to take some heat here, OK? What I meant to say is I'll take a Jack Daniels. That's what I meant, because you won't like me anymore. And you're rolling your eyes, and you're calling, oh, now I'm your buddy. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, double pound. <laughs> you know. I don't care about your double pound, sir. I care about a high five from heaven. I want to make him happy. Amen? Don't get me started. I already feel it coming and I want to maintain some composure up here. (laughs) Look, truth is truth, right is right. You're a Christian, you're a Christian. God is God, no matter if it costs you your life. Are you gonna change something by saying, okay, what I meant to say is really, it's okay to be sexually immoral. You know, God looks the other way, who doesn't? You know, you get engaged, you live together, you have the honeymoon first, You know, what's a little wrong? What's wrong with that? That's what I meant to say. So you'll like me better, and you won't roll your eyes, and you won't call me some kind of Jesus freak. So I have spared my reputation at the cost of my relationship with God. Because right is right, and wrong is wrong. It doesn't change. By their pressure, or by their imprisonment, What is he going to come out of prison and say, oh, excuse me, Uh, Muhammad really is the prophet. Jesus really didn't come in the flesh. What's he supposed to say? To change truth because there's a little pressure on you? They hold a gun to your head. They hold, held a gun to her head at Columbine High School. She was in the library with an, a Bible on her break. And he saw it, and he walks up to her and puts a gun to her head and says, "Do you believe in God?" And she says, "Yes." She's with him. She's with him. A song was written about her. It doesn't change. It doesn't change anything to put a gun to my head. It doesn't change anything. And Peter says, "Are you going to stand, or are you going to fall?" And that's what First Peter's trying to encourage us. You don't quit. If it's God's will, he says, it's better to suffer for doing right and pleasing God than to do the wrong thing and spare yourself a little trouble. And so he says, yeah, you suffer, you've done the right thing, you're blessed. That's how God wants you to see it. When you take heat, doing the right thing. When it costs you convenience or uh, relationally, he's saying, you know what you are? Makarios in the Greek. It's the same word that Jesus uses for the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when? Blessed are you. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. That word makarios in the Greek, it means to be happy or to have favor with God. Jesus said, and Peter's pulling from Jesus' words, blessed are you when men insult you, persecute you, say all kinds of false stuff about you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Why are you blessed? He says, Jesus says, because you're in good company. Uh, Excuse me, he says in John chapter 7, keep in mind if the world gives you a hard time, it really didn't give me a good time. If they don't like you, keep in mind that they didn't like me before that. And that's the reason they don't like you. You're in good company. You've been promised heavenly reward. You're pleasing God. God's using you to bring glory in that jail cell. Have you you having his favor? And God has promised to ultimately vindicate and bring you victory. Plus all of this, Peter really is saying the Lord has a witness protection program. <laughs> In other words, when you give witness and you're being threatened, you can't say that. You say that. You say you saw what you saw. we will kill you. The Lord says, oh, I, I'll take care of you with those guys because you will say everything you saw and everything you know because that's the way I save the world. I redeem the world through your mouths and through your lives that give testimony or witness to me, the truth. And everybody's going to tell you, you say that, and you know what? You won't be coming to Thanksgiving dinner. Or you will do this, and you'll lose your job, and we'll throw you in prison to rot there, in Rasht. Iran. The Lord says, I will vindicate you. The Ayatollah Khomeini, the supreme leader of Iran, may be displeased but the Lord Jesus Christ, the supreme ruler of the universe, is pleased. And that makes all the difference. So Peter gives the key to moving forward without compromising and without fear. And he says, may I paraphrase, if it means you have to suffer for doing the right thing, don't freak out. Don't be scared. But in your heart, determined to bow only to Jesus as Lord. So Peter is going to offer you who face hostility and are tempted to compromise because of the heat to do the wrong thing and disobey instead of the right thing, he's going to offer you really some advice he's learned through humiliated failure. In the Gospels, we find out that it was at the high priest's courtyard one day at the end after Peter was saying, oh, Lord, everybody at this table will denounce you before me. I'll die with you. And the Lord was already on to him and said, Oh, really, Peter? You know what? Before a little rooster goes cock-a-doodle-doo three times, you know what? You're going to say you don't even know me. And he says, Oh, no, no, no. No way. And so he goes out in his arrogant kind of self-confident strength of his own power and he sees Jesus being brutally interrogated, and three times by the fire, he's asked, aren't you one of them? Did you belong to him? And three times he says no, and the last time he just starts cussing, and saying, I don't know the man, I swear to it, and cock-a-doodle-doo. See, now, somewhere between that day and the day of Pentecost, some 50 days later, Peter has learned the secret of not giving way to the fear of man. And here it is. Did you see it? He said, you know what to do? Sanctify in your heart Jesus is Lord. In other words, that means make a special place in your heart for one thing and one thing only. Jesus is Lord. If you have that as your essence of living, That the only thing in your heart, the foundation, the core, the essence of who you are is one thing. Jesus is Lord. The reverent fear you have of the Lord will replace your puny fear of man. That's what happened to Peter. He got so enamored. with, Jesus is Lord. He is the God who spoke and made the world. I am now more afraid of failing him and letting him down. He's the Lord of love. The Lord who shed his blood for me on the cross, who went to the cross thinking about me, That's an amazing thing that motivates you to be able to say, I will not bow because of his greatness, because of his grace to me, because of what he did on the cross for me. He is Lord. Do you see? You have a special place set apart for the shrine in your heart for the decisions that you make on a daily basis is born out of one thing. Jesus is Lord. And he says, Everything else will follow. Just give him his place in that heart of yours. Give him number one spot. Let him be on that throne. And you don't have to fear where the little maid, maid, a little housemaid, a servant girl who asks Peter, do you know him? I, you know, you got a Galilean accent. You won't have to worry about her because Jesus is Lord. And so you need to say amen there. Seriously, <laughs> you know you wanted to. i will just start helping to pull it out of you right there. Well, so, you know, they sing a song in uh, children's church. Pastor Josh said, uh, there's a song I don't know how I feel about. How do you feel about this song, Pastor Ross? It's called God is Bigger Than the Boogeyman. And I said, that is awesome. I love that song. That's what we need to teach our kids. And excuse me, it's what we ought to be singing in our own hearts. The second you just think, you know, I'm going to back down just a little bit here. God is bigger than whatever it is that's telling you, you better do this. You better not say that. You better not open your mouth. God is bigger. (laughs) Sorry. Jesus is Lord. And in the end, what's going to matter? You know you have an appointment. Everybody knows that. I asked my non-Christian classes at a secular college where I taught. How many of you think that you're going to stand before the living God and give an account for your life? Raise your hand. Hold the whole class. It doesn't matter if they're Christian. We know we are going to stand at the end eyeball to eyeball with the one who made us. And I don't know about you, but I want to live my life Thinking about that day, not thinking about who's happy here. You can't pastor a church and try to matter who's happy here. You cannot do it. Now, I found that out one week into this business because everybody's got an opinion about something. And, and God bless you all and all of your opinions. <laughs> However, and I listened to them, but I listened to a still small voice more than all of your opinions. Because that's my destiny, to stand before that one and say, yeah, I know what they said. And I know what they said at work. And I know what they said at school. And I know what your mama said. And I know what uh, the... What happened there? Your mama? Your mama? I know, he says, but what was I saying? Excuse me, what was I saying? I know what the Ayatollah told you. I know what he said. I'm just asking you, what was I saying to you at that moment? Who are you going to serve, the Ayatollah? Or are you going to serve me? Which one? Amen? Can we move on now? All right, number two. So yeah, let's get our thinking straight. Suffering for standing up for God is a good thing. It's blessed. And the way out of fear is to center your whole existence on one thought, Jesus is Lord. So right thinking will produce right speaking. Number two, getting our words right. It's ironic to me that the same Lord who we have sanctified in our heart as such gives us courage to face the suffering. He also inspires us to share our hope with those who are aggressing us. Here's the paraphrase. In your heart, set apart Jesus as Lord, and always have a ready answer to anyone asking you about this hope of yours. And so, you know, freedom from fear of them doesn't or shouldn't uh, yield pride or smugness in our hearts. We don't taunt our enemies or those who oppose Christianity. Just because we're not afraid of them doesn't give us license to get up in their face and condescendingly preach at them. That's not what we're supposed to do. So unjust suffering is an opportunity to share the hope that you have because you want others to have that same hope. That's the whole reason for the gospel is that those souls will come to know him. It doesn't matter if you start stoning somebody to death stephen says lord as he's dying and they're hurling stones to crush him he says don't hold this against them he wants to share the hope they're not the enemy they're the object of god's love and the object of our love and um heart as well. So Peter knows that godly responses in the face of difficulties will cause people to take note. So he says, listen, when you live the way the Bible's telling you to live, when you you are responding kindly, when you're aggressed, and when you're going the second mile and loving your enemies, people are going to have questions. Why are you that way? Why are Are you not angry? Why are you blessing people who curse you? Acts chapter 4 and verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized they were unschooled, ordinary guys. They were astonished, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. So some in the crowd who see Peter doing his thing, 3,000 people getting saved, he's standing up to the same tribunal that he stood before, before, and failed really, not quite in their presence, but in the courtyard. What, what are you guys fishermen? <laughs> Where'd you get all this wisdom? You left your boats? What are you doing standing here? Who gave you all that? Where did you, did you go to seminary? No. Tell me about it. And he says, you better be ready because when people see Christ shining through your life and you live in uh, in an upside down way, they're going to have questions and you better have a defense. The word for answer there is apologia in the Greek where we get the word apology, but not in the same use that we use it in English. Apology, of course, is to say, I'm sorry, but this is a defense. And this is where we get the term apologetics, which is the discipline in theology that makes a defense for the gospel, that refutes um, false doctrine and supports and and speaks to the truth of sound doctrine. That's called apologetics. He says all Christians are going to be asked. All Christians, through your suffering, you will have opportunity. He says. You better have a word ready. Can you give your testimony? You've gotta have a different testimony for different situations. Are you prepared to speak? Are you looking for opportunities? You have to have a ready defense because you have a window of opportunity that opens during the day and it's gone in 10 seconds. You better have been prepared. You're a witness and the and the scripture is saying you've got to be ready you have to study to do your part study the word of god so you can correctly handle it we prepare our testimonies and then we rely on the power of the holy spirit they'll say you have peace in the storm you're kind to the ungrateful you go to the extra mile you love your enemies you say something nice about those who insult you. What, what, what's up with you? What's your problem? <laughs> really, basically, they want to know what makes you different, rather. and you've got to say something of substance. Why do you believe in the Bible? I don't know. My mom does. Why is the Bible right and the Book of Mormon is not? Have an answer, an apologia. What happens when you die? You know, I'm basically a good person. You need an apologia. When we lived on Maria Drive in Petaluma, I believe Zach was around third grade. He asked me, he's an engineer now, working on missiles at Lockheed Martin, so this will make sense to you. He asked me in third grade when he saw two Mormon boys driving by on bikes, Dad, how do we know that they're not right and we're wrong? How do we know that? I want to know, how do I know that they are off and we are on? Explain that to me. So I did. I sat down and I said, here's the Bible. This is what we're working with here. They carry a Bible too, Zach. But they also carry a book called the Book of Mormon where they believe that Jesus is not the Lord. He's not God. That's kind of the bottom line. So, Zach, let me show you something. And Peter. We sat down. Was there. Jordan as well. And But Zach was leading the way. And I opened the book to John 1. 1 and I said, read that. And he says, in the beginning, God, there was God. But well, in the beginning was the Word. Thank you. (laughs) I was going to Genesis 1 for some reason. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So I say, thank you, by the way. (laughs) And I said, Zach, so what does that make the Word? God. And I go, now go arrow down to 14, like I say all the time. Arrow down to 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I said, so what does that mean? Oh, God became a man. I said, there you go. Jesus is God. All right, I said, you got that? Let's go over it a few times. And we did. Ding dong. <laughs> and I opened the door. And I said, oh, have I been waiting for you too, <laughs> Zach! So Zach comes out, and I go, son, uh, here's a Bible. I'd like you to talk to them. And he said, "Okay." He opens up, he says, turn with me to John 1. (laughs) He turns to John 1. He reads it to them. And he says, out loud. So he reads it out loud. And he says, who's the word? Who's, Who's the word? They say, God. Okay, look down at 14. He said, Jesus is God. That's why we're different from you. <laughs> and then they say, you know, whatever. You know what it really means there. That, you know, they they say, you know, we believe in the word of God as far as it is accurately translated. Yeah, right. And so, but you know what? From an early age, they had a I want to ask you. How do you know the Jehovah's Witness thing isn't true? You gotta tell me why you do, why they're wrong, please. Because when they're standing there with the Awake magazine, God is saying, "Is anyone gonna stop and say anything to them? Nothing. You've got nothing to say. You're my representative. You got you walk right by them. You don't say anything. Hmm. That's a problem," says the Word of God. And so finally. Oh, he, he does say, and make sure you do gentleness and reverence because it's not so just the content of what you say to people. It's the character in which you uh, give the truth. Okay. I, Pastor Jim and I had an awkward conversation a year ago about street preaching. I said, Pastor Jim, I do not want to be associated with street preaching that is condescending, condemning, uh, proud, arrogant, angry. I said to him in that conversation, it is very easy to get on a box and feel superior to all those sinners and start pointing the finger. I said, you guard your heart and what comes out of your mouth better sound, grounded in humility, because there but the grace of God goes your sorry soul. Amen? I wasn't saying your sorry soul to Jim, necessarily, but our sorry souls. Amen? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. You know, it sounds a little trite, but you know what? We turn off the ears as soon as you sound preachy, or better than me, or you know everything, and I'm the bad guy, you're the good guy, uh-uh. Grounded in gentleness and respect, which does not mean mealy mouth kind of watering down, excuse me. No, it means you can fire away, you can have intense, passionate debates, but you have to be grounded in love, and sensitivity, and have an absence of malice and manipulation and self-righteousness. If you can take that out, then go for it. And when I hear Jim, oh, man, it is a thing of beauty. It's a gift from God. And when I hear all of those guys, they are pleading in love. They are not preaching down. And It's just something to remember. The last little part here, get ready for heaven, is, um, because this is the path that leads there. Okay, here's his point. It's a little confusing passage. We're going to look at it. He's saying, listen, you're following this Jesus. You're being met with resistance as he was. You're responding as he did, reverencing the Father, setting a special place in your heart for God as Lord You're standing up for him. You're giving a ready defense with gentleness and love. Let me tell you where all that leads you ultimately because it will look like you're losing. And then suddenly, as we follow Jesus' example, he goes down and then he goes up, high. And he says, you're following and you will end up the place the person you're following ends up at. That's how following goes. You get to the place where the guy you're following gets to. And that's really the point of the passage. So here's the paraphrase of something that's very difficult. The part about Jesus preaching in prison there. Jesus died for the sins of the world to bring us to God. They executed his body, but he was raised to life by the Holy Spirit. And from paradise... He proclaimed his victory over the condemned spirits in Hades who tried to destroy God's plan back in Noah's day when only eight people on earth survived. Through that watery grave, this water is a symbol then of Christian baptism. Through that watery grave, they were saved. It's not about the dunking in the water and removing dirt. It's about what's going on inside the person's heart. A vow to God to live right before him. That's what saves you, thanks to the resurrection of Jesus, who's gone into heaven, who has been given all power and all authority over angels, authorities, and powers. First, let's talk about the confusing part. Uh, Really what he's saying, it ended pretty well for Jesus, and it will end pretty well for you if you're following in like manner. So, first to this confusing part, this mysterious description of Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. In Genesis, well, let me, Genesis chapter 3, Satan was informed by God that his conqueror, who would crush his head, would be born of a woman. He said, through the woman's seed, I'm going to make a, a line of people. And through that, unbroken line from her womb, from Eve's womb, one day, 77 people from now, he will arise and he will crush your head. Job description number one of Satan. Destroy that line. Stop the line. Because the line was starting with Abel. So Satan got his boy Cain. He said, Cain. You're really jealous right now. You're jealous. You're angry enough to kill him. And he killed him. Boom, whoa, there. The chain's been broken, but God said it'll be through Seth. Seth, Enosh, Kenan, mahalal Jared, Enoch. Satan's like, okay, he's getting somewhere. Seven names down, 70 more. I'm gone. Stop this. And so what scholars believe happened, Genesis chapter 6, demons intermingled with men and women, and out came this demonized, monstrous beast of something that was called a giant. It was also uh, thought that the animal kingdom was also affected in this war to stop the seed from getting to, to its fulfillment in Christ. And so there you have a little shout-out to possible uh, dinosaurs, animals that were mutant freaks like human beings were. And so it is as if Satan would look at God back in those days and say, bring your conqueror into this. You've got the dinosaurs, you've got freakish, evil beings. Listen to what it says. It says that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, And every inclination of the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. So Satan says, go ahead, bring your Savior into this. And God says, you know, you're right, I can't. I'm going to hit the redo button. So Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Get Noah, who is Lamech's son in the chain, Get Noah on a boat and make sure Shem is on board because it'll be through Shem that Jesus comes. Get them on a boat and let's do do do-over. And he did it. The Lord then reaches number 77. He comes through a virgin womb. He's done it. He dies on the cross. He descends down into Hades, where Hades was. Luke 16 says that before the cross and payment for the sins of the world were made, and Jesus rose victoriously, ascending into heaven. Before that time, heaven was in Hades below, waiting for Jesus to rescue it, to pay for their sins to bring them into the presence of God. So from the paradise side, where it says, this day I will be in paradise with you, he's saying to the thief. From paradise side, he says, to the spirits who were conquered back in Noah's time, who tried to stop him and practically destroyed the earth, it is estimated that six billion people were on the planet A lot of billions, whatever the number was, at least over a billion people, given the timelines and all of that. So Jesus goes and from paradise proclaims to all of the lost wicked that tried to stop. He proclaims. He's not preaching. Like, if I see any hands, please, you can come over to this side. It's not that. It means to herald or to announce. So he announced victoriously. Ta-da! You failed, God wins, and then he ascends and takes paradise with him. And now to be absent from the body is to be present in heaven. He left Hades, called uh, the place of torment, down below. It remains down below as a holding tank for all the departed spirits who do not acknowledge God as Lord. At the end, they will be resurrected. And then hell begins. I throw all of that in for free. It's a little bit of a a bunny trail, but uh, all that to say, and that's a hard thing to get. And most Christians don't get that. But I like to have you informed. You know, so you have an apologia when it says, hey, you know, what do you mean? He went descended to, to into paradise. What does that mean? Well, now you can say. Well, let me tell you what that means. Amen. You all looked at me like uh, that's a good habit. <laughs> But uh, you can get the tape and go over your notes. And... <laughs> here's here's the whole point of that. is that it looked bad, but Jesus died. He couldn't be kept dead. He rose. But before he even rose, he's already saying, you lose. I win. And then he ascends. And the whole point of the passage is you will follow him. It'll look like you're losing. But then you will sit on a throne with him. You'll have crowns. You'll have things to do. You'll be exalted. So it's not just the dying in the prison part. Let me close with this little vision, okay? Let's pretend in the prison cell tonight in Rasht, Iran, 750 miles north of Tehran tonight, Yusuf, prays to the Lord. Let's say the Lord grants him a vision of himself. And Yusuf says, Lord, I was baptized in your name, and that's when all the trouble started. And then the Lord would say, Yusuf, I was baptized in your name, and that's when all my trouble started. Then he says, Lord, I was despised and rejected. And the Lord says, Me too. Did they hate you without a cause, kid? because that's what they hated me, without a cause. Then he says, you know what? I stood up for truth, Lord, with gentleness and respect, and I was persecuted. Jesus says, yeah, tell me about it. And then he says, they arrested me, (laughs) though I did nothing to deserve it. And the Lord says, you know, they came at night in a garden for me, led by one of my boys. How was it for you? Where'd they come for you? It was a garden for me. He said, Lord, they sentenced me to die. And Jesus looks at Yusuf and says, kid, they can't kill you. They can stop your body, but they can't touch. Not, Not a hair of your head will be harmed, he says. Let them stop the heart. That's the moment the real fun begins. You'll be raised to an inheritance incorruptible. You'll be rewarded. You'll be reunited with, the, with those who've gone before you. You'll be given a job to do. You will be given a throne. And all of your enemies will bow before you because you belong to me. The Bible says, do you not realize that we will judge angels? Do you not realize, I'm quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not realize that we will judge the world? We. Suffered, dying, rejected, marginalized, ostracized, mocked, death, resurrection, judging them. He ultimately is their judge, but he includes us to participate in judging not just lost men and women, but we will participate in judging lost angels, demons, They will come before us, and they will bow, says the Bible. So Yusuf, please, a little longer. I'm with you. I'm with your wife and your two kids at home. I'm taking care of this. You may be released. You may not be. But I'm in control, not the Ayatollah. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you for your power, your glorious might, and this love that sets us free. Father, in the face of hostility, now we wish to remember the thing that really motivates us, your death on our behalf. As you paid on that cross for the sins of the world, the righteous and unrighteous, Peter says, and 1 John, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We thank you for that hope, God. And now as we remember your death on our behalf, we ask your blessing, touch our hearts, and open the eyes of our hearts. In Jesus' name.